Alright, uh, well we finished uh, studying the book of Isaiah, or as much as I wanted to teach out of it, I think. We're all finished with it. So we're going to uh, pick up a study in uh, a gospel, and that gospel is going to be Luke. So we're going to undertake a study of the book of Luke, and um, I wanted to share with you, uh, I'll teach the first four verses of Luke chapter 1 this morning, and then next week, uh, I'll be here, but we're going to have a guest speaker, he's actually my pastor, um, and I'm, I'm hesitant to have him come and speak because you're going to find out that everything you've learned I've stolen from him. He's, uh, he's one of the best expositors of scripture I've ever had the privilege to study under, and, and his name is Pastor Don McClure, and he's the head of the Calvary Chapel Association. Um, Michelle and I served with Don and Jean in San Jose for a number of years, and I just adore this man, and he had an open uh, weekend on his schedule because he's, he's requested all over the country, and so um, we're going to be blessed to have him next Sunday. And then the following Sunday, um, I'll... I'll I might be here, however, um, I might go down to San Diego uh, for the second memorial service for Justin Meek, one of the uh, victims of the borderline shooting. Um, but we, we were already planning to have Mike and Pam Rozelle come. They do Pottersfield Ministry. Uh, it's a, a presentation of the gospel unlike anything you've ever seen. I've, I've witnessed this presentation over 30 times. Every time I'm in tears. It is uh, such a unique combination of skills and the way that Mike and Pam put this together. Please invite everyone you know to come. Um, it will be a rem- and there, and there, uh, Mike and Pam will be doing the women's tea as well. So it'll it'll be the next two Sundays will be guest speakers and then we're going to resume through the book of Luke, which I'm excited about because that'll put us at the Christmas story in the book of Luke and I won't have to necessarily do a topical message for Christmas because we're going to be right there and I'm going to take a look at uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth and so um, it's going to be fun. Now the undertaking of the study of the book of Luke, um, this, this, is, this is an account um, of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. John has a vocabulary of a, maybe a six to a six years to ten year old. Uh, his his vocabulary in the Greek is is limited. Uh, it's a very simplistic book, uh, but John has obviously profound thoughts. But it's a very it's a very simple read um, in the Greek. And then uh, Matthew is more from the perspective. His name is Matthew Levi or Levi Matthew. He is kind of a wayward priest, um, and he he comes from the messianic position. He comes from the the Judeo position, and he goes through the lineage, uh, the genealogy of Christ. It's it's very important for him to do that. Um, and he he gives us insights into the temple that the other gospel accounts don't give. Mark, uh, his gospel account is from a servant's perspective, and Mark doesn't add the genealogy because a, a servant doesn't have a genealogy, and Mark's is kind of like the Reader's Digest version of the gospels. It's very quick and very uh, simplistic, uh, very matter-of-fact. It's, it's almost like bullet points. You're just going through quick epics of, uh, of Jesus' life. What I love about Luke is Luke is an undertaking of a study by a physician, um, Luke was uh, was a physician with Jesus. Or excuse me, Luke was a physician with Paul from Acts 16 onward to the end of Paul's life, and he's writing the book. We're going to see in a moment. He's writing it uh, to a guy named Theophilus. Um, the definition of Theophilus means lover of God, but it also means most excellent, which means he wasn't a plebe or a knight. He was of the aristocracy of the Roman Empire, which means he was probably a senator or somebody who held an aristocratic position. And the likelihood is Luke was Theophilus's uh, physician because in those days uh, you didn't really count on your health care. You just, if you were rich enough, you had your own doctor, kind of saved money that way. And so Luke was Theophilus's um, physician and Theophilus had given uh, Luke to Paul uh, for his journeys. And obviously, Luke took care of him. Luke was with him to the very end of his life. Uh, when, when Demas had forsaken him, Luke was there. And he came to rely on Luke. Luke um, is the most prolific author in the New Testament. He's written more of the New Testament than any other author, author, even more than Paul, because he wrote not only the gospel according to Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. 
you know, how, how the church is established as, as the Holy Spirit of God dwells in mankind and then what, what takes place. And so Luke has the most amount of writings of the New Testament of any author. In addition, uh, Luke uses over 350 words that aren't found in the other gospel accounts. And they're technical words. Uh, and this is where we get accounts that other gospel writers don't use. For example, when, um, when Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, uh, the high priest's servant, Luke is the one who covers Jesus healing the ear, putting it back on and healing it. And, and that's something that a physician would be like, oh, that's cool. I got to write that down. And, and Luke didn't walk with Christ. Uh, Luke was, you're going to see in the opening verses, Luke took time to interview eyewitnesses to write this down. Uh, in addition, Luke uses 50 words. Now, there's over 350 words in the gospel accounts that only Luke uses, but there's 50 words that no other author in the entirety of the Bible uses that Luke uses. He is very technical. He has a grasp of not only the Greek language, but of the the medical language. Even in the opening four verses, we're going to see a couple of words that Luke uses. One in, uh, in, in specific is where we get the word autopsy. Um, and, and in the writing of Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he's going to use this, this Greek word that is today for us, this idea of an autopsy, uh, where you're examining something so in-depth that you're getting an understanding of all of its inner workings and, and how it operates. And so this is what's so fascinating about Luke. Now, For him to be a physician, which he was, and it was declared in the scriptures, he had to have graduated either from Tarsus, uh, Alexandria, or Rome. And if he had gone to school at Tarsus, Alexandria, Rome, he had to finish his his final studies um, in the Roman Empire to be considered um, a physician in Rome at the Collegium Architeum, which is in Rome itself. So you have to finish your, it's kind of like going for your residency or or he has to go to the Collegium Architeria, Architorium. I always get that wrong. Architorium. He had to study there. So the likelihood is many scholars believe that uh, Paul and Luke were friends when Paul, as we know, Paul's from Tarsus. So they probably met maybe when he was in medical school uh, in Tarsus, but we don't know that to be for sure. Um, and so this is, this is a fascinating account. It's one of my favorites. And, um, and what we're going to do is we'll look at the first four verses, and then I'm going to address the first four verses uh, to something that we're heavily struggling with in our culture today. And I, I pray that it ministers to you because um, it's necessary if we're going to survive the future for, for Christendom. So with that, would you open up to Luke chapter 1? If you need a Bible, these folks walking down the aisles will give you one. Luke chapter 1. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And we're going to go to chapter 1. I'm going to wait for them. They have a long walk and we have to be patient with them. I think. These aisles are getting so long. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep that one. Amen. Amen. You have a whole collection, don't you? No, just kidding. <laughs> Luke chapter 1. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 1, I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered, uh, of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you, An orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty, that you may know the certainty, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Very important what I emphasized, and we'll see that momentarily, but let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is truth. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you lead us into all truth. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the word and the word is true. 
And so as we examine your word this day, cause us to come alive to your word which is already living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, I pray that our hearts would be established in the truth of your word and that we would understand what we hold in our hand is not the works of man, but the works of God. And it is truth. And so we ask that you'd bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a seat. Relax. This, um, this series of verses, one through four, that I had us read, I'll put them up here. We, we begin with Luke chapter one, verses one through four, and it says, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order. This idea of an orderly understanding. Luke is a physician. Luke wants to know how something works. He wants to dissect it. He wants to do an autopsy. He wants to lay this out so he understands how the entire system is established. And I want to set it in order so that every part works properly. And thus, I want to... to take in hand to set in order a narrative of the things which have been fulfilled among us. We've witnessed this as he writes the the book of Acts. This is the acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles. He's seeing the spirit of God move in the, the lives of men and how it's changing the world as everyone would know it. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, they delivered them to us. So he is investigating eyewitnesses. He traveled with Paul from Acts 16 on he would, when, when Paul was in prison in Caesarea Philippi, when he was in prison at other locations, Luke would sit down and take copious notes. He'd travel back to Jerusalem, take copious notes. He'd sit down with Mary and take copious notes. He'd sit down with other eyewitnesses and take copious notes. He'd come back and ask other questions. Tell me what this was about. Tell me what that was about. Tell me how you came to this conclusion. What do you mean he cut off his ear? Whose ear? Malchus. He would give us insights into Mary that no one else would have. That's why we have the Christmas story unlike any other gospel account because this is a physician who understands I have to understand everything about this this system and put it in order and set it in order and I'm going to do that by observing every detail and that's why he is meticulous in his application of these skills that God entrusted to him. Verse three, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account. I wanna make sure that everything is in order and that there's this perfection of this understanding. And then he uses this term most excellent, which is the declaration of aristocracy, most excellent Theophilus of those things, Theophilus that you may know the certainty. And I, I emphasize that, that you may know that you may know. Uh, the word Theophilus, the name, is translated, interestingly, I've translated uh, lover of God. Lover of God. And, and I would think that that is a, an applicable term. It's almost as though Luke is writing the scripture to us. Not that we're all aristocracy, but we certainly, I would pray, are lovers of God. Now, I know there's some in here that aren't, and you, you know, I'd it's Thanksgiving and you, you, okay, I'll go to church. I get that. I've been sitting in your seat before. But, but with this, this idea that the majority of the folks in the room came to worship God, we love God. We love him and we want to worship him. That's why we, we sing at the beginning and we have words that describe his characteristics and our hands raise and surrender and, and our hearts are moved and, and, and our voices sing with, with joy and, and thanksgiving. And this is that idea that we would know with certainty because we're lovers of God. We want to know with certainty of the things in which we're being instructed. I'm not undertaking another study of another book. There's 66 books of the Bible written by 40 different authors over a span of 1,600 years. And I'm not going to undertake another study of another book of the scripture um, without emphasizing something. Because we've lost it in our culture. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. There, there are folks in this room that love God and don't believe that the Bible they're holding is inerrant. There are preachers in the Conejo Valley, let alone Ventura County, let alone California, the United States. I would say a lion's share of the preachers will preach every Sunday about God from the scriptures and don't believe the Bible to be inerrant and holy. There are seminaries that educate our pastors that don't believe the Bible to be inerrant. Mm. 
And here we are today. Is what we're holding true? Or is this an exercise in futility? I met with a civic leader, ran into them, and as I met with this civic leader, uh, they, they, we had attended many of, of the memorial services for the Borderline 12. And we've seen a, a, a different set of memorial services for each one of the victims, and, and this we liked about that memorial service. This wasn't our favorite, but this was very, you know, profound. Uh, this not so much, that certainly. And it's, it, every service had something precious about it. And some services, there were some things that were difficult. And, and they, have, they have been with us. It's this, this group of civic leaders that have gone from here and we meet here and we go here. We're at every vigil, we're at every memorial service. We've got three more to go and we're all trying to attend them together. And, and many of the civic leaders are not churchgoers. And as I ran into one of them, they said to me, you know, from a pastor's perspective, how did you feel about this memorial service? And how, how about what this minister said? And how about what that minister said? And they're asking for my opinion. And, and I, you know, we've had contrasting ideologies at some of the memorial services. One person would speak and another would speak and, and contradict what that person said. And then this person would stand up and contradict what that person said to emphasize that, no, 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 we don't see the world the same way. Well, I've witnessed that on a number of the memorial services because there's loved ones and, and, we just had Thanksgiving, right? And we were around the table with blood relatives. <laughs> and we probably have more in common in this room than we have at our dinner table with some of our extended family. The one thing you don't talk about at the table, if you're going to enjoy the turkey peacefully, no politics, no religion. Some of you brought it up, and that's why you look irritated right now. <laughs> it's difficult. And, and here I'm with this civic leader, and they're asking honest questions about how I perceived the different speakers at each of these different events. And what I said to them was, we have two conflicting worldviews. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, there's the physical world and there's the metaphysical world. The ideology in the physical world, in this progressive world, in this idea that, that progressivism is that, that mankind doesn't need the figmentation or the stupidity or, or the, 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 the poor thinking of a creator. We're, we're smarter than that. We don't need a creator. Because the world is physical. Matter is neither created nor destroyed. It just is. And when we die, we just dissipate and then we're reconformed in other matter. And that's, that's that worldview. And, and, and this is how we educate our children. We remove God from the equation. We remove God from government. We remove any idea of a creator. You come over here to the metaphysical world where we believe that we are creatures created by God and we're accountable to a God. Over here, we're accountable to mankind. We set our own rules. Over here, you have a God of justice. He establishes this. They're absolutes. They're immovable. They're unshakable. They're unbreakable. He is a God of justice. Over here, you have social justice. It's a moving scale. It's a moving target. It's just depending on what the majority votes to be just. Social justice. Over here, his word, which we declare to be absolute, says that there are two genders, male and female. Over here, it's a moving scale. I don't know how many there are as of today. I don't say that jokingly. I, it's changing rapidly. There, there's another letter added. And I don't know how to refer. I, I don't have all the pronouns. Over here there are two. And I say that because this is the conflict in culture. Over here, 
they look at me and I happen to be a person of faith in a world, quite honestly, that is, is fading. Our seminaries don't believe the word of God to be true. Our pastors don't believe the word of God to be without error and true. And thus the, the culture of Christianity is, is moving this way. Our young people are moving this way. Our, the, the, the Bible isn't true enough to be affecting culture. We don't infuse it in culture. We don't stand upon it. We don't declare it. We don't seek to have this established. We don't even study it. And thus, our young people move here. And they're educated in this concept of a physical world, not metaphysical. When you stand, and you're one of the few remaining to stand, and declaring the Bible to be inerrant, and the word of God, with certainty, as, as Luke wrote to Theophilus, with certainty that we would know, they laugh at you. And they make sport of you. And there's not an easier target than a Christian to pick on. And quite honestly, the narrative of Christians being stupid and picking, it's getting a little old. Find a new target. But what what gets me the most is when you stand over here with certainty, they look at you and they say, you're evil. And you're wrong. I like that. Because when I'm here in my metaphysical world and they're in their physical world and they're using metaphysical terms, I go, time out. You're using my world to defend yours. You can't use medical, metaphysical terms. You can't use concepts of love. Love isn't matter. It's not substance. Love is an idea. Love is a feeling. You can't use that. You can't use truth because there is no absolute. Truth is subjective. You have the moving scale. Over here, it, it always is, even if it's not popular, it is still what it is. And you call me evil. You can't say evil because you're declaring that there is an ultimate good. You can't do that. And you've evolved. Survival of the fittest. Over here, I can say that Hitler was evil. I can say that the massacre... Of, of 12 of our young people was evil. I can say that. Over here, you can't. No, I'm not, I, I don't keep pointing you guys. I'm, I just illustratively. <laughs> precious group of folks. Just stay with it. Just stay with it. And the reason why you can't is because there is no good and evil. It's only matter. You can't say, you can't say, and, and this is what I... I I appreciate about college students who buy into the evolutionary theory that when you look at them, you say, you you can't say with certainty that six million Jews being murdered, gassed, and burned was evil by Hitler. And they go, you know, I can't. And you can't say over here that rape is wrong because if it's the survival of the fittest, don't you want your species to continue? And in all fairness, they do. And I go, that's just not a world I want a part of. It gets really dark after a while. Over here, it's a little harder, I agree. Because we have rules and boundaries and a God we're accountable to. And we have to submit. I know that's rough. Because we want to do what seems right in our own eyes, subjective. But over here, it's absolute. But because we don't hold it to be with certainty and absolute and we don't believe it to be the inerrant word of God, our young people go over here. And now we have a breakdown. Why do I say all this? Why have I emphasized this? You see, if you're leaving Long Beach Harbor to go to Hawaii and you're off one degree, you miss Hawaii by hundreds of miles. If what we're doing is an exercise in futility and you only believe a portion of the scriptures to be true but not the entirety of the scriptures to be true, over time, we might as well last one out, turn off the lights. Because we have nothing to say to culture. And that's why Luke took so much time in as much as many have taken in hand to set an order. Everyone's attempted to do this, but I am going to do it from the perspective of a physician with absolute focus. I'm going to do a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. I will interview every one of them. And the ministers of the word delivered them to us. I will make certain of what they said. 
It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account. I want to lay this out so that you know this is legitimate. That you may know the certainty. You can count on it. You can raise your family by it. You can declare it to work for culture. You can apply it to the education of your children with certainty of those things of which you've been instructed. Train your child in the way they will go. When they're older, they will not depart thereof. Well, yeah, that's what the scripture says, but I just assume give them over to the progressive world because I'm not so sure. We've had sermonettes for Christianettes so long that we have given up the inerrancy of the scriptures to the point where, quote unquote, evangelical seminaries have abandoned the inerrancy of scripture. Christian colleges and universities have abandoned the inerrancy of scripture. And, and now it is in vogue to dismiss the legitimacy of scripture. Here is the Da Vinci Code written by Dan Brown. The first quote is his, almost everything our fathers taught us about Christ is false. This is in the Da Vinci Code, pointing out that it's just a fallacy, anything having to do with Christianity. All the scriptures are written by men and they're stupid. And he quotes Leonardo da Vinci who wrote, many have made a trade of delusions and false miracles deceiving the stupid multitude. Hey, just get a big bumper sticker, slap it on your forehead, stupid multitudes. You have bought into this concept of miracles and you are, you are living in delusion. You're deceiving yourself and you are part of the stupid multitude. And some sitting in the room are going, yes, that's right. It's a Bible written by men. It is. Yeah. 66 books of that thing written by 40 different authors over a span of 1,600 years and most of them by oral tradition and waited probably 10 or 20 years before they ever wrote it down. Even the guy you're quoting, Luke, waited and had to take eyewitness accounts from oral tradition to write it down until he got it. There are so many errors, I don't even think any of it could be true. Well, look at you. Look at you. So smart. I'm going to give you three And I'm going to tell you why I'm making them simple. Not because I question your intellect. Mine needs help. And I teach the way I learn. I make it idiot proof. I'm putting the cookies at the bottom shelf. Everyone will be able to reach them. Okay? I'm going to give you just three simple reasons why the Bible cannot have any errors in it. Three simple reasons why what you hold is inerrant. It's factually, completely true. It's not just true, it is truth. And I'm gonna give you three simple reasons. You ready? I wanna write these down. I hope it's the right slide. (laughs) God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You go, oh, whatever. Nope, not whatever. Not whatever. The Bible is the word of God. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. The Bible is the word of God. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. Now, there's only two ways to avoid that conclusion. The Bible is the word of God, therefore the Bible cannot err. There's only two ways to avoid that conclusion. One, one is to deny that God cannot err. You go ahead and take that up with him. Because if he's a God who errs, why are you worshiping him? You see, The person I was talking to, the civic leader, started coming up with, well, there's truth in in Buddhism, and there's truth in Islam, and there's truth in, and I said, yeah, there's there's truth found sporadically all over the earth. What, What point is that? Is the entirety of it truth? Is it without error? It's not what you want it to be, because the scripture, which is truth, says... 
that man makes gods in his image. He fashions them with his hands. And the Bible says you become like that which you worship. And the honesty of the Greeks and the Romans I appreciate because they would be alcoholics. And they go, you know what? I'm not an alcoholic. I just happen to be under the control of a god named Bacchus. That's the god of alcohol. And they recognize that they were possessed by a power greater than themselves that they they couldn't say no to. Some of you know this God, small g. And they've been mopping the floor with you for a long time. There's another God that they would say that they were dominated by and had power over them. Aphrodite. I'm not addicted to pornography. I just worship Aphrodite. And recognizing that a power greater than you has possession of you and you're at least worshiping that which is possessing you. Now it's destroying your family and you don't have any intimacy or honesty and and your life is difficult and you've tried to manage as best you can and you're running out of resources. And we just add another God. Some of you love to be angry. God of Mars, war. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not angry, I'm Irish. And you just are under the possession of something that controls you and you give it a small G for a tiny God and that's what the Greeks and the Romans did. At least they were honest. But you know what? We've all come to this place because we're tired of being possessed by gods that don't benefit or bless us. And Christ said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundant, that you would know the truth and the truth would set you free. I'm no longer under the control of alcohol or opioids or any of these other things. God has set me free by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. I've been set free. He is the supreme. He is God. The others are small g. He's capital G. The word of God cannot err. The Bible is the word of God. The Bible cannot err. Now, there's only two ways to avoid this conclusion. Wait. Deny that God cannot err or deny that the Bible is the word of God. You get those two choices. So go ahead. I deny that the Bible is the word of God. You can't say that it is the word of God and it's with error. You can't do it. You don't have that option. You can either say God errs or that the Bible is not the word of God. Those are your two options. You can't be a Christian And say that the Bible has error. Big statement. I'll defend it. Look at John 17, 17. Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. I love that. Not that your word has truth. It is truth. It is the embodiment of truth. In light there's no darkness. In good there is no evil. In in truth there is no error. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The embodiment of truth. The completion of truth. It is wholly true. Christ said that. That's the red letters. Declaring that the Father, his word is true. God the Father, when he speaks, his word is truth. God cannot err. His word cannot err. Look what is written of God the Father in relation to the psalmist, Psalm 119, 160. The entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. The entirety of your word is truth. The entirety of your word is truth, not has truth, is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Time doesn't cease to, it just continues The sum of God's word is truth. The sum of God's word is truth. The sum of God's word is truth. Titus 1, 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. There's a couple of things God can't do. God can't create two mountains without a valley. God can't create a stick without two ends. And God cannot lie. Which means every time he speaks, he speaks 
God cannot lie, so every time he speaks, he speaks. He cannot lie. I can lie. He cannot lie. You can lie. He cannot lie. It is, an, it is, it is this undeniable characteristic of God the Father. Stated again in Hebrews 6.18. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. God cannot lie. God cannot lie. So his word is. Now either he's not God. But if he's God, he cannot lie. Because what he says is, those are your only options. Now you can declare that the word is not true. But God is stating that his word is true and he's given us his word. Look what Jesus said in relation to the word of God, John 10, 35 If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, what Jesus is saying is God's word can't be broken. I gave you my word. I stand by my word. It cannot be broken. It is true. I cannot lie. The sum of God's word is truth. It can't be broken. And it would be declared in the scriptures in 2 Timothy, Paul would write, all scripture is given by inspiration. Everyone say inspiration. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word inspiration in the Greek means breathed out. Breathed out. You exhale. God breathes out his word and then we inhale. Is inspired It comes into us. And as you see this, it's fascinating that God will speak in the Old Testament and the scripture says God speaks. And then in the New Testament, it will use that passage of scripture and say, and the scripture says. God says the scripture says, both are true. God said it, the scripture declares it. God is true, his word is true. God is without error. His word is without error. Watch this. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. This is verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, The Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And then verse 3 says, And in you all nations will be blessed. It's the Abrahamic promise. Paul writes it out in Galatians 3.8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Same account. God said, scripture says. God said, scripture says. God said, scripture says. God said, scripture says. My point is this. God says it. Scripture declares it. They're both true. God cannot lie. Genesis 2.24, another account. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A man shall leave his mother and father. Matthew 19.4, and he answered and said to them, have you not read, Jesus speaking, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? The most prolific statement in the New Testament out of the mouth of Jesus over 90 times, it is written. It is written. It is written. The scripture declares. What Jesus is saying is, my father speaks, his word is true. I give validity to the scripture, I quote it. He spoke it, man wrote it down, I declare it, it is true. Have you not read? It is written. God has said, the scriptures declare you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. How's that possible? Look at 1 Thessalonians 
chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. It's the word of God, it's true. Either it is or it isn't. Either you're wasting your time and should go to another church. And there's, trust me, churches that believe in the inerrancy of scripture, there's so few of them, you can find another church. But you're gonna miss Hawaii by hundreds of miles. Either what we hold is legitimate and can influence and change culture or your kids just grew up over here. Choose this day. The first reason that the scripture is the word of God and it is true is God the Father. He cannot lie. I showed you that. When he speaks, it is his word and it is true. And not only does he speak it, the scriptures declare it so the word of God based by God the Father is true. The second defense is God the Son. Whatever the Son of God affirms as true is true. Whatever the Son of God affirms as true is true. What does Jesus say about the Bible? Matthew 4, 4, do you see that right there? Matthew 4, 4. He answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I didn't say it, Jesus said it. Jesus goes on to declare that not only is it God's word, but his word is indestructible. He lays out such a case from, from the position of God the Son. Matthew 5, 18, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. What he's saying there is, every T will be crossed and every I will be dotted. Not one T crossed, not I, one I dotted will pass away till the law is fulfilled. This word of God, when he speaks it, it is indestructible indestructible for 2,000 years the winds of, 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 a, of a attempted destruction have been blowing and yet it has not affected the word of God not one bit you know I think about the Irishman who lived next to the Scotsman and the Irishman looked at the Scotsman he says what you build in there and the Scotsman says I'm building a wall right here it's got three feet high, three feet wide now. That's what I'm doing right there. Three feet wide, three feet high. The Irishman says, why is it three feet wide and three feet high? He says, it's quite simple now there, laddie. In case the wind blows and turns it over, it'll be the same height. <laughs> the wind's of doubt have been blowing on the word of God for over 2,000 years and it is indestructible. Every great nation in the history of the world has had a season of embracing the word of God which has brought it, brought it affluence and grandeur. And every nation that has abandoned it has witnessed death and destruction. In one generation, Nazi Germany, which was the epicenter of the gospel during the Reformation, became a nation responsible for the death of 50 million people. Two priests, two ministers, stood before Herr Hitler, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Niemöller, and all the other Lutheran Church of Germany pastors gathered and stood in front of Herr Hitler. And he said, Hitler said to all the pastors, I'm going to take care of your pensions. I'll keep your buildings pristine. I'm going to look out for you. Don't you worry about anything. We'll keep the traditions of Christianity. And Niemöller and Bonhoeffer said, But who will be in charge of the soul of Germany? And Hitler said, you leave the soul of Germany to me. And 50 million people died. Every nation that's abandoned anything having to do with God has been a nation that is consumed with death. Oh, but this time, this socialism's gonna work. How, honestly, how can you be so stupid? I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the people who say that. If you say that, how can you be so stupid? 
no, 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 you don't understand. It'll work this time because we'll all treat each other equal. You don't understand who you are and how you've been created in your fall and that you are naturally sinful and that you are selfish. You don't understand that, you, that the law is applying restraint toward evil in order to pursue excellence. You think the law is there so you can take from somebody to give to yourself something you didn't earn. That's an abuse of the law. You, you don't believe in a God of justice. You believe in social justice and, and you can make any law you want to destroy whatever it is you want, you want to have. Even though socialism is contrary to two of the ten commandments of the God of justice, thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not covet, you still want to apply it because you think if you take the other person's A and give them a C and you give the person with an F a C, everyone's equal. It doesn't work. They won't work hard and they're going to wait for their handout. This is a God of justice. Social justice is a lie. This is true. And Jesus declares his word is indestructible. It doesn't matter if you believe it or you don't believe it. I'm sorry, what was that? You, you don't believe in gravity? Well, oh, I'm sorry, what? All of, all of the education system has taught all the children that gravity doesn't exist? Oh, we're in the minority over here because we believe gravity? I'm sorry, what, you're chanting? You're yelling and screaming so that we can't be heard? What's the chant? We won't die, will what, fly? Oh, so we send an entire generation of our young people because nobody wants to stand upon the truth that gravity exists, so we're gonna let all of our young people do their chant and convince all their classmates that gravity doesn't exist. You won't die, you'll fly, you won't die, you'll fly. And they all run off the cliff of social justice. And die. Because we won't rely and stand upon this truth. And contend with a lie. Jesus affirms that God's word is true. Matthew 4, 4. God's word is indestructible. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will not be destroyed. He spoke it into existence. Light be. Light was. That is in the exact Hebrew. Light be. Light was. Go ahead, try that one. Speak your world into existence. What do you got? Little God, small g, give me. He said light be. Boom, light was. Jesus said in John 10, 35, I think this is the one, yeah. He says, that God's word is unbreakable. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, the word of God cannot be broken. It's unbreakable. You see this, I'm running out of time, but you see this, Mark seven thirteen, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. God's word is above every human tradition. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh-uh, no. Man's tradition trumps God's word. We just finished Thanksgiving and it was for me one of the most delightful Thanksgivings ever. Loved it. Because there was so much to be thankful for. Thessalonians says, give thanks in everything for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And we just went through this hell, evil, and digging deep into God's presence and clinging to the truth of his word and giving thanks in all things and finding, not asking why, but what is it that you want us to glean from this? And it, it brought a depth of, of reality and, and, and God's presence and being with family meant more now. But I think about how tradition always just destroys this pressing into God. We come up with all the things we have to do at Christmas. And it just... Where's the Lord in all of that? I, I remember the story about Easter. Four generations of women are in the house and, and the young newlywed, she gets to do the Easter meal for the family and, and her mom is there and her grandma's there and her great-grandma's there and she goes to prepare the recipe, the traditional recipe for the, for the Easter ham and, and, and she's reading it and says, cut off the ends of the ham. She cuts them off. She sees this good meat and she's like, what in the world? So she goes to her mom, she says, mom, why do, we, why do we cut off the ends of the ham? She says, it's in the, it's in the recipe, the family recipe for the family ham. 
She says, you know, I don't know. I just, grandma wrote it and I've just been doing it ever since. I'm not sure. Let's go ask grandma. They go to grandma. Grandma, why do we cut off the ends of the ham for the Easter ham? She goes, I don't know. I did that too. Let's ask great grandma. They go to great grandma. She's hard of hearing. They're yelling at her. Why do we cut off the end of the ham? And she goes, I don't know why you do it, but my pan was only this big. We have been doing this for hundreds of years and we don't change anything. Yeah, but God's word says, I don't care. This is tradition. We have no syncopated rhythms in the church. Oh no. Why? Well, it's tradition. Where does it say in God's word? Well, it doesn't, but it, it's, that's, that's not sanctified. Pounding on some sort of a box. Where does that come from? Well, and let's reverse it. The young people going, hymns? Who sings like that? You can't have music without pounding on a box. This is sanctified. This is movement. You've got to feel it in your chest. This is God's music. You're both wrong. You worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. You don't need music to worship. The woman with the demon-possessed daughter, the Syrophoenician woman with the demon-possessed daughter, worshiped the Lord with three words, Lord, help me. I didn't hear any music. I didn't hear drums or hymns or anything. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. It's a condition of the heart. That's scripture. Man's tradition. But what God points out is God's word is above every human tradition. Now, you say, well, God the Son proving, first of all, the Bible is inaccurate historically. Oh, really? Yes. I mean, that stupid whale of a tail, Jonah. We all know that that is as dumb as a day is long. It's a whale of a tail. (laughs) A man being swallowed by a whale. Didn't say whale, said fish. (laughs) Oh, like a fish could swallow a man. And he could live in his belly for three days. I understand. Ever heard of a whale shark? There are accounts throughout history of somebody living in the belly of a whale shark. You see how big those are? For three days. But dismiss that. Just dismiss it. Because the scripture says fish, not whale. That's a mammal. Yes, but it's inaccurate. Okay, fair enough. Then don't bother coming to church. Because if you can't accept Jonah, dismiss Christ. I didn't say that. The Lord did. Jonah, is it a tail of a whale or a whale of a tail? What does Jesus say? Is the Bible historically accurate? Let's just see what Jesus says. Matthew 12, 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe me if I tell you heavenly things? If I speak of the heavens and you don't believe me, how am I going to speak of how to get to heaven and you believe me? And secondly, I am quoting Jonah and I'm equating it with the most significant event in Christendom, the resurrection. And if you can't believe me on Jonah, you can't believe me that I rose from the dead. Give it up. Have the kids move over to this side. It's over. It's not partially true. Christ declares it to be wholly true. He quotes out of Jonah. He equates the resurrection with Jonah. I didn't do it, he did it. If Jesus is right about Jonah, then you can trust that Jesus died and rose from the grave. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then you cannot trust him regarding Jonah. And I would say if you can't trust him regarding Jonah, you can't trust that he rose from the grave either. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. I think we would do a lot better if we started to believe that what we're holding is the inerrant word of God and started not only applying it to our lives, but the lives of our children and our community. We sure could use an infusion of truth. And then finally, reason number three, and I'll be finished. God, the Holy Spirit, you remember this? We studied a couple weeks ago. It really helped me through the last couple weeks. Verse 26, but the helper, the paraclete, 
the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. And, and here you have, you have Luke trying to, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which I have been fulfilled among us and those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers who delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also having perfect understanding of all things. Very first to write to you an orderly account. How am I going to remember all these things? I believe that the Bible, when it was originally written in its original manuscripts, is the inerrant word of God, but we don't have those original manuscripts, so the Bible that we hold is fallible, not true. And that is most of the seminaries and the Christian universities in America, which are wrong. Because to err is human, but to love is divine. How could feeble, fallible men Give us an accurate account of the scriptures. They obviously transcribe them improperly. Then take out John 14, 26. He will teach you all things and bring your remembrance all things that I said to you. Wait a minute. Oral tradition took 10 or 20 years. So? I still can remember pithy sayings from 10 or 20 years ago. I can go way back. I can go... Late one night when we were all in bed, old mother Leary left a lantern in the shed and when the cow kicked it over, she winked her eye and said, it'll be a hot time in the old town. I learned that at 12. <laughs> Let me just share with you some of the lyrics my Navy captain father taught me. <laughs> and as a minister, I still can't get rid of them. I remember them from seven don't tell me you can't remember things. Oh, but pastor, to err is human and to love is divine. 66 books of the Bible written by 40 different authors over 1,600 years. Is the Bible factually er er inerrant? There's no way it could be factually inerrant. Humans err, that's true. Humans err, that's true. But are they always wrong? I'm gonna write a book that's without error. Page one. One plus one equals two. Page two. Two plus two equals four. Page three. Four plus four equals eight. I can keep going for a couple more pages. <laughs> I am a fallible human being that wrote a book that has no error. Yes, humans err. But we can still be used by God for perfection. I want to emphasize this and then we'll close. Doing virtues, thinking virtues. Doing virtue. You're hungry, you're driven by your sexual drive, whatever it is, you're drawn to that. That's a doing virtue. We all have those. Debase, it's, it's animalistic almost. I gotta have it. A thinking virtue comes, as Aristotle says, and we can avoid the scripture for those of you who are really checking out. Aristotle says there's doing virtues and thinking virtues. The doing virtue is your drive, your debased drive. Your thinking virtue is where he describes the law. The law is the wise restraints that make men free. You apply restraints towards doing virtue to apply thinking virtue in order to obtain excellence. Case in point, you wake up, you're hungry. You go for cold pizza, or you have this box of donuts, they're easily accessible, or you fry up some eggs and you have some protein and you mix the proteins with some grains and you have a healthy, rounded meal. Most of us go for the donuts. Insulin spike, crash, coffee, keep going. <laughs> Sexual drive, a doing virtue. I see it, I want it, I take it. And, and, and if you eat by the doing virtues, you're, you're killing yourself. If you live sexually by the doing virtues, you have no intimacy and no family. A thinking virtue is you apply restraints and you say, what is the best in order to obtain life? And those are the absolutes that we apply in order to obtain excellence. Why do we allow why do we limit alcohol being served a certain distance from a school? Because our ancients realized we've got to apply these restraints for the sake of our kids obtaining excellence. Sin comes easy to people. 
You don't have to practice. Right? I don't, I don't need a book to educate me on how to sin. I got it down. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow. And I think of the kids. No, I, I, I'm just doing the doing virtue. I just play the Xbox. <laughs> I've killed 20,000 Nazi zombies. <laughs> Hope that gets you a six-figure income. Oh, well, you know, mom and dad usually chip in. (laughs) Failure to launch. Well, I got a ribbon every time I participated. (laughs) Wait a minute. You have to apply restraint towards that idiot box. And you have to do your homework. While you're sitting here just doing, doing virtues, they're over here applying thinking virtues and they're obtaining excellence and they're learning biology and they're learning systems and they're, they're examining truth and they're putting these together to do a contribution to society. Yeah, but mom and dad take care of me and they're gonna pay my rent. And then they, 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 they buy all the food. You know what, you, you need to boot them. Failure to launch, get them out of the nest. I'm 27 and still like, doing, go! Well, how am I going to make a living? Thinking virtue. Thinking virtue. Apply restraint. Put the stupid controller down and go up. Educate yourself. You, you, you are given compensation for your contribution to society. You want to make a good salary? Learn something that will contribute to society. Well, I should should get paid a six-figure income for flipping burgers. No, you shouldn't. A robot can do that. Study. Learn human anatomy. Figure out the brain. Make a contribution to society. Be somebody. Apply restraint so you can have a thinking virtue to make a contribution to bring life. That's true. That's what God intends so we can obtain excellence. To apply everything he said which is true. To examine truth. To apply truth. To live for truth. And that's what God wants from us. And when you do that, you know what happens? God can take a fallible man or woman who applies restraints towards evil in order to pursue excellence. And he does this. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Human beings do not always err, and human beings do not err. Excuse me, human beings do not always err, and human beings do not err when moved by God who cannot err. God can use an imperfect being to author a perfect book. So the Holy Spirit does that, and that's what God does in our life. And I would just say, as we conclude, One of the things that hits me is God came upon mankind and he can take a crooked stick and make a straight line. He can use you or me. But what is necessary for us is that we have to apply ourselves and agree. And as we come back, take me back to Luke 1, will you? You got it? Thanks. The passages in Luke 1, which are important, set in order. First of all, Luke uses this this idea where he says, an eyewitness, autopia, where we get the word autopsy. It's a medical term Luke uses. He was a doctor, a scholar. He is going to dissect this and understand completely how to put it in order. He's applying thinking virtues for the sake of mankind, and he's working diligently. He asks about Malchus. He asks about Mary. He looks at all the different aspects. He uses over 350 words no other gospel writer uses. He has an intense grasp of the Greek language because he's studied. He wants you to know what you're holding is legitimate, not like John, six to ten-year-old vocabulary. John did the best he could. And he did it right, but here he uses this idea where he says perfect understanding, where you get the the Greek word akrobos, where you get acrobat, where you can walk on a tightrope, and you're so trained at it, no one ever worries about you falling. He is setting that in perfect understanding, perfect order, and he uses the term from the very first, anaphen, which means this idea of new birth, coming from above. I want to set in order this very first anaphen, this new birth with this autopsy, this undertaking, 
And I want us to be in this understanding that having seen this record, it points to a perfect guidance from above. Completely clear that you would know with certainty. And the scripture says, unable to slip. And that's where you get this word, katakeo, this catechism, a certainty. It's a clarity. Luke did it, verses one through four. He believes it to be the inerrant word of God. In two weeks, are we gonna undertake a study of another one of these 66 books written by some fallible human author or are we gonna study the word of God, which is true? It's not just true, it is truth. And do we believe it so much that when we study it, our kids aren't gonna float over here anymore. They're gonna come back because of the way we live and the way we apply and stand upon his truth. There's gotta be a cultural change or the last one out, turn off the light. His word is either truth or it isn't. Otherwise, it is an exercise in futility. And you know what? One guy, Luke, man, I love his writings and what he did and what he wrote in the book of Acts. It absolutely transformed my Christian walk. I am who I am today because Luke wrote what he wrote. And you know how he did it? A lot of really hard work. He applied his thinking virtues. He restrained towards evil in order to pursue excellence. He studied to show himself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word that is truth. And so I just want us to get excited about the study of the book of Luke. And so that's why it took so much time to do. So there. Amen. Amen.